Now, we're going to start today by saying that true worship, worship must begin with an encounter with God. It must begin by encountering God. Now, it's easy to kind of step into this story and not know the background, but the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord was a very important artifact for the people of Israel. I mean, 2 Samuel chapter 6 just kind of drops us in on the scene and says they're bringing the ark back, but we don't know the full history there. Now, some of you may. But if you remember, David had just become king of the entire nation. Now, when he first became king, he was just king of Judah, and then they combined everything after a while because when Saul went away and David was made king, one of Saul's men, Abner, thought that he should have somebody else appointed king, and so they divided the kingdom for a brief time before David brought them back together. And so just a chapter before this, we see that David is officially the king of Israel, okay? What's interesting about this is that the Ark of the Covenant is not something new, but the Ark of the Covenant had been in Israel for several years, a long time ago, back before Samuel even. There was a priest named Eli, and Eli was a good priest, but he had two terrible sons. And these two terrible sons were selfish. They tried to abuse the priesthood for themselves. They tried to gain things for themselves through the authority of God. And in fact, they thought it was time for them to go to war. God had not sanctioned it, but they knew they had the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the reason in Raiders of the Lost Ark, everybody wanted the Ark? You remember that? The Nazis are trying to find it because if they found it, they thought it would give them unlimited power in battle. Well, these two sons of Eli, Hophnus and Phinehas, decide they're going to go do that. And as they go, they take the ark with them. The only problem is God hadn't sanctioned it, and as a result, the Philistines won. And the first thing the Philistines did, remember the Philistines, they're like the ultimate rivals of the Israelites, right? The Philistines take the ark back to their place. It was such a tragic event in the life of Israel that when the sons come back, or not even the sons, people come back to report that this has happened, it says that Eli is so distraught that he falls over backwards. It seems he was sitting on a rock or something. So distraught. He had gotten heavy at the time. He was older. He fell over backwards, and he breaks his neck and dies. At the same time, one of the son's daughters goes into labor at the, hearing the news because it's so drastic, so tragic, and she gives birth to a son. And because of what has happened with the Ark of the Covenant, she names the son Ichabod. Know what that name means? The glory has left. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not a name I want to be saddled with in my life, right? But her son was named that because it was such a big deal. Well, when Saul comes to power, the Philistines have a little trouble with the ark. It just seems that they put the ark in place and bad things happen. They get tumors. They have problems. They don't want the ark anymore. And so they say, take it back. This thing's doing terrible things to us. Take it back. Well, Saul, remember Saul was not really a good king. And this ark stayed in a guy's house for like 20 years. And Saul never in his tenure really went after the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Well, here's the thing. David becomes king, 
and being a man after God's own heart, one of the first things he wants to do is to go get the ark. Now, why was the ark so important? A couple of things. First of all, it symbolized the very presence of the Lord to his people. There are three things inside the ark. Three things inside the ark. Anybody know what they are? What's that? Stone tablets. Ten commandments. The very finger of God had been put there. What else? Aaron's rod that budded to show the miraculous power of God. What else? Some manna. The bread. Show his faithfulness. And so these three things, and on top were these cherubim, and there was literally a seat there where they thought the presence of God stayed. And so David says, it's been out there long enough, we're going to get it. So that sets the scene. So they go to get the ark. Chapter 6 again, verse 1. And he brings out 30,000 men. Does this sound like a big occasion or a small occasion? Big deal, right? 30,000 men. And they all set out and they bring up from there the ark of the God, ark of God, which is called by name, the name of the Lord, which is enthroned. Verse 3, this sounds really good. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Nothing but the best for our Lord, right? There's only one problem with that. That's how, how you're supposed to carry the ark. Leviticus made it very clear. The only way to carry the ark was to put these poles that were special made for it, to put it on the shoulders of priests and to carry it that way. So while that sounds good, what it really is telling the people that have read this, that know this, that have been reading the book and learning it all their lives is they didn't do it the right way. They treated the things of the Lord with disrespect. They handled the things of God too lacklusterly. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's good. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. Utsa and Ahio, sons of Abinad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel, and I want you to notice this, okay? We're going to get to this again in a minute, but just notice this. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, how many people are there? 30,000. Small or big? Big. Celebrating with all their might. I'm going to tell you, it was a raucous scene. All right? Now, look what they're doing. They were with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. Now, I know some of those we use today, some of those we don't, but there's a word in there that's interesting, the sistrum. I haven't seen a sistrum lately, have you? I looked it up because I hadn't seen one. I was trying to remind myself what it was. It was this instrument that you kind of clanged around. Now, here's what I found interesting, and um, just maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's okay. I'm going to tell you anyways. It was the official instrument of the gods of that day that were about excessive celebration. Now, I don't know about you. But if there's an instrument that's tied to some of excessive celebration, the thing that probably would have happened is you think that it's intended to celebrate with, right? So these people were having a party. There's no other way to describe it. They are enjoying themselves before the Lord. Verse 6. And we'll come back to that, okay? When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God. Because the oxen stumbled. Now, in some translations, it says the oxen was about to turn it over. Some translations, it just says it stumbled. Something happened, and the ark got displaced. All right? 
you've been moving things before, carefully moving things, walking with things, and it kind of jostles a little bit. Maybe everybody else up there is having a good time, but you're a little concerned about what's happening back here. And he reaches out and touches the ark. What's the problem with that? You don't touch the ark. Verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his... Anybody got NIV? What's that word there? Irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. Struck him down. And he died there beside the ark of the Lord. It's a tough passage, isn't it? He's just walking along, seeming to do his own thing, and the ark starts to fall off, and reflexively or non-reflexively, whatever, he reaches up to touch the ark, and he dies. Any other places in Scripture you know of where God strikes somebody down? Leviticus 10, there's an incident you can go back and read about a guy that in worship is not being reverent towards the Lord, and he's struck down. Remember in the New Testament? when everybody's bringing their gifts to give to the new church so that they can all have their gifts there and let everybody see it and let everybody know that they're worshiping the Lord and these two people, this husband and wife, come in and say, we brought everything from what we just sold and we're placing it before the Lord. Do you remember that? And I said, Sapphira, what happens to them? Dead. We must never handle the things of God without reverence in our heart. And true worship must be reverent. That means that there's a holy appreciation of who God is. That means that we long to give Him what He deserves. That means we come with an appropriate fear of the Lord. Now, you understand that fear in the New Testament and the Old Testament does not mean trembling in a corner. It means a healthy respect. And so whenever we come to church, whenever we come to worship, we don't enter into this building lightly if we come to worship. People say, well, you know what? He, he was just having a reflex. Well, why did God do that? I mean, it was just natural reaction. You just push your hands up. You hold it to steady. Why did God do that? The point is not why did he be true to the word he had given. The question is, Uzzah should have known better. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Levitical Code, it gives specific instructions on how to handle the things of God. And one of the things that had to be written on everything that was used in worship was holy unto the Lord, set apart unto the Lord. Now, I'll just be real honest. Part of the problem with my generation and our worship and our understanding of church is that we have lost some of the sense of things being holy unto the Lord. We have. And what we see in this passage of Scripture very clearly is when you are not cautious in the way that you approach the Lord, there are dire consequences. Amen? And so whenever we come into worship, we don't come with an irreverent attitude, with a lackluster understanding of who God is. Say, well, Pastor, how do we touch the ark, if you will, today? How do we come with irreverence? First of all, you do that when you come into worship and you worship when you're not right with God. When you're not right with Him. Just be real honest this morning. Did you come this morning prepared at all to be confronted with those things in your life 
that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, some of you may have. Some of you, that is the last thought on your mind. Your last thought is about your sin. Your first thought is, how do I get there? How do I get the kids there? How do I get into the classroom on time? How do I get to worship on time? What do I got going on afterwards? I filled that hour and a half of my life. It's time to move on. Have you come this morning ready to be confronted by the very things in your life that might be preventing you from worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth? You see, people that say that we need to walk in with a holy reverence for the Lord will be the same people that will walk in week after week after week without ever allowing their heart to be pricked or their conscience touched by the Holy Spirit of God that is trying to convict us of the very things that we're doing wrong. You see, reverence does not mean silence. And when we come into this place and we are not serving Him completely, when there are things in our lives things that we are doing, things that we are listening to, looking out, being part of, things that we have said or thought, we come in with irreverence. It's not just when we're not right with God. It's also when we're not real with God. The most ridiculous thing in the world is when we try to trick God. Right? I mean, some of you in this room are pretty good at tricking other people. I don't mean that as a I don't mean that as a slide. I just mean that we've learned, as church members especially, how to play the game. That somehow, when we open that door in the parking lot of this building, our whole countenance changes. When we walk through those doors, we're different than the other six and three quarters days of the year, of the week. We're just different. We've learned how to play it, and we come in here, and we try to act like everything's good, everything's fine, everything's all right, and we're not real with God. One of those passages of Scripture that Jesus quotes out of Isaiah, which shows you if Jesus quotes it, it's probably pretty good, right? I mean, when somebody quotes something, they think that's a pretty good statement. When Jesus quotes it, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And just to be honest... If we're real in this moment, there are week after week after week when there are people in this room that come in and your lips honor Him, but your hearts are far from Him. Our worship must be reverent. Verse 8. I love David. You know, David's my favorite human character in Scripture. Outside of Jesus, he's the one that I identify with the most. And that's not because I'm some great man, but because David was just so ordinary. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God used him in extraordinary ways, but David was just very ordinary. I mean, look at verse 8. David was angry. Who's he angry at? God. David was angry at the Lord's wrath that broken out against Uzzah, and he to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. It means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Do you think he got the message? How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now think about David for a minute. He has been longing for, as soon as I become king, I'm going to get the ark. He goes to get the ark, but he forgets to do what God told him to do. And as they're walking along, one of his men dies, and suddenly in his mind he thinks, why did I even go get it? 
He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, I just want you to think for a minute, if you're Obed-Edom of the Gittites, can you imagine David coming to you and saying, hey, I'm going to drop this off for a little bit. Now, I'd be real careful around it. Some guy just touched it and he died, but could you just put it over in a corner somewhere? I mean, it's just some guy's house. We don't have a mention of this guy anywhere else. I mean, literally, it's like David was walking through your neighborhood. This happened in front of your house. You know something's going on, and suddenly you hear everything stop. I mean, there's nothing that is more resounding than silence after a major celebration, right? And it stops, and you go out there, and you go, "Uh uh-oh, something not good has happened. And David says, we're just going to leave this ark here for a little bit. I'm going to bet he didn't go near it for a while. Verse 11. I love this. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Oded, Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. What happens to him? Good stuff starts happening. Reports start to get back to David. and I love this, and this is just a little aside. This is just a little extra for you today. You notice how sometimes when something goes wrong, we throw out everything? David scrapped his whole plan to get the ark because one thing went wrong. God wasn't upset with the plan. He was upset with how he did it. Right? And sometimes things will happen in a church. Church will start trying something new, and it won't go as successful as people think. They say, see, I told you, we were never supposed to do that kind of stuff in the first place. Well, maybe the idea wasn't bad. The execution was. I've seen churches where things were tried, new things were going on, things were happening, and there was a group of people that weren't really excited about it. And so underhandedly, they sabotaged some of what was going on. And then when it failed, they said, see, God's telling us we shouldn't do that anymore. And so they threw it all out. God wasn't upset with the plan. He was upset with how David did it. The king David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of the God. So David went down and brought up the ark of the God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Do you think he took the poles? You think he took the poles? I do. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. I want you to notice the difference between what they did before and what they did this time. The first time they put it on a cart and they started dancing and singing. Now, there's nothing wrong with the dancing and singing. It was what they were doing with the ark. And they go a little wise. A guy gets stopped. He puts his hands up. He dies. This time they get the poles. How many steps do they go? Six. And I'm going to bet David was there going, one, two. And when they got to six, he said, stop it. We're having a worship right now. Isn't that what it says? When they had carried it, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Now, I know for us that's not really worship, but for them that was the highest form of worship. Verse 14, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. Now, I just want you to notice something, as we are in a Baptist church. Verse 14 says, David, wearing a linen ephod. What's the next word there in the NIV? What's that word? He He what? Was, David wasn't Baptist, was he? I don't know what he was, but he was a follower of the Lord. I know that. And he danced. Just take note. 
while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord. So let me ask you a question. Does it mean when you revere the Lord, when you're reverent before him, does that mean you're quiet and reserved? Is that what it means? No. You see, our worship must not only be reverent, but it must also be undignified. And this is what I mean. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd. And David is having a party, right? We're celebrating, we're worshiping, everybody eat. Both men and women and all the people went to their homes. How do you think the people were feeling when they went home that day? They felt like most of us felt leaving this place last Sunday. They were jacked up, right? Great time. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, son of Saul, came out to meet him and said, It is a wonderful thing that you have brought the Ark of the Covenant back here. Is that what she says? Man, I could not believe the celebration that I just saw. David, I am glad you, being the leader of this nation, were out there leading everybody in worship. Is that what she says? How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. I think there was some sarcasm there disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now here's the thing. You can hear this linen ephod being described in a lot of ways. Some people have said that David was out dancing in his, um, his underwear or that he was out in his undergarment. But the truth is it would have been under his jacket. It's not underwear like we think. It, it was his from head to toe or from head to knee, he would have been covered. But here's the point of them saying he's wearing a linen ephod. is because usually when you wore that, you wore a coat over the top of it, kind of like I'm wearing a coat today. And basically all that happened is David thought the coat was encumbersome or cumbersome to him and was preventing him from worshiping. And all the men in the room said, Amen. Amen, all right? So he took off the coat. And he danced because he didn't want anything hindering him as he danced. And so he was doing that. And his wife looks at him and says, that's just ridiculous. Verse 21. David said to her, I don't care what you think. That's not what it says right there, but that's what he says. It was before the Lord. Now, then he takes and he puts a little jab in. This is probably not the best marital counseling passage you can find. Who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel? I will celebrate before the Lord. I want you to notice something. In verse 20, what does it call David's wife? Does it say the wife of David? Daughter of Saul, right? That's important because it's saying she's acting more like her dad than the wife of her husband. Verse 22. I will become even more undignified than this. 
and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. David says, listen, what I was doing out there was just expressing my worship to my Lord. I'm part of a generation that has spent the last 15 or 20 years in some ways redefining how we worship in a corporate way. There's no secret about that. Worship wars have broken out all over the country, all over the world, really. And it's all about what happens in worship. And I mentioned earlier that I am part of a generation that in some ways has taken the things of the Lord too lightly and that we have lost some of the reverence that is there. But we also are reacting sometimes, or that movement is reacting against some people that have taken the reverence too far and are missing out on the exuberance and the excitement and the way that undignity or indignity ought to be present in worship. I went to a conference several years ago when the Lord just kind of freed me of some of my inhibitions in worship. And I, I, I grew up, I grew up, and it still is, one of the most traditional churches you can find. I mean, if you went to my home church and then you saw me and you saw me worship, you'd wonder where it came from because it's just different. First church I ever worked at still wore robes, pastors, very formal. And I went to a conference in college and Lord just kind of broke free of that. And I remember specifically, and after that conference, I was back in a setting that was more traditional. And I was sitting there, and there was a particular song at that moment that really touched my heart. And in my heart, I just wanted to lift my hands into the Lord. And I remember literally my arms almost being at my side, feeling like there were weights on them. And I remember saying, you know, I just want to lift my hands. And I remember thinking in my mind, but, you know, if I do that, so-and-so that's sitting behind me is not going to understand. And there are going to be people over there that are going to think, what is that boy turning into? And somebody around a dinner table today is going to say, we better stop that stuff. We don't let charismatic stuff in this church. And as I began to think those thoughts, the Lord very specifically said to me, whose opinion counts? And I remember, and I'll tell you, it was like I was lifting weights on my arms when my hands went up to the sky. Now, you can look in Scripture. People ask me sometimes when I raise my hands, mainly because I feel that the Lord has called me to do that in expression. Whatever the Lord asked me to do, I'm going to do. But it's also biblically commanded. I mean, it's in the Scriptures. If you want the Scriptures, I can give you the Scriptures. Not today. I'm not going to do it now. But I'll give you the Scriptures. And as I lifted my hands, there was freedom that came in expressing myself in worship. I'll be real honest. There's still times when I'm sitting right down here worshiping the Lord, and He speaks to my heart, and something, a song connects with me. I, I, I move in worship. My, my legs move. My, I shuffle. I don't, I don't necessarily, well... For me, it may be dancing because I'm not very good at dancing regardless. But my, my feet go up and down. I move side to side. When I talk about my heart, I pound my chest. I, I just, I'm expressive that way. And there's still times when I'm over here, and we're going to talk next week a series about spiritual warfare. And I, don't, I, I think the depictions of an angel, one shoulder, a devil, another soldier aren't really, shoulder aren't really good. But there's still those thoughts that come into mind. Well, you've got to be careful, Lyle. You've got to be real careful about what you're doing here. 
And in those moments, I just have to remember that there's only one opinion that counts. And I'll just be real honest with you. Some of you may not like the fact that I raise my hands or that other people in this room raise their hands. I don't really care. And I say that as, I don't mean that in a harsh way. I just don't. Because I believe. Now, if I was doing it as a show for everybody to see, if I turned around and say, hey, look, I got my hand up. What about you? That's not why I'm doing it. It's just an expression. And this sermon isn't about me and my worship style. What it is about is that both sides have to be there. And now let me caution both sides, okay? Because it's not an either or, it's a both and. Don't judge what somebody else is doing in worship. If you're a hand raiser out there, God bless you. But don't think just because somebody doesn't raise their hand, they're not worshiping. Now, if you're out there and you are somebody that doesn't raise their hand in worship, don't look at somebody else that's raising their hand and think, that's just not for me. Maybe it's not for you, but don't judge them. Let me give you one final word from this passage that's a caution in that way. Many times I've read this passage. You know what I've done? I've skipped over verse 23. It's not a skip over verse. And Michael, 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 daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. In that culture, for a woman, the biggest sign that you had been abandoned by God was that you had no children. Now, we know that there are lots of reasons in today's world. We find medical reasons people don't have children. But in their culture, when you make a statement like that, what you are basically saying is, Ichabod, the glory has left. And what happens in this passage of Scripture, some people say that means David would not go to her anymore. Some people say that God closed her womb. I don't know what the answer is there. I don't know what the scholar, because the Scripture doesn't tell us. The point of the Scripture is she criticized David for expressing himself in worship, and she received punishment for that. Let me just advise you. That when you decide it's time to criticize someone else's worship, you better be sure of the ground on which you stand. Either way. Because Second Samuel chapter 6, I'd never put the two of them together, shows us that on one spectrum we can be so exuberant that we forget how we're to handle the things of God. But on the other side, we can be so reserved that we miss out on what it means to truly glorify Him. And the answer is not somewhere in the middle. It's not somewhere in the middle. The answer is full on both of them. Now, I don't know how that works, but it works, all right? And so it's being biblically correct. It's being theologically sound. It's singing words that make sense and make a difference. But it's also doing it with enthusiasm and excitement and allowing yourself to be in complete freedom. I mean, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever been in a place where you are so enraptured with what God is doing in your life and the worship that is happening at that moment that you no longer care what people think? Because until you have been there, you have not been in worship. For invitation today, we're going to sing a song that's a little different than an invitation song. I mean, for us. 
And the song was written, and most of you have heard this story, but it's worth retelling. The song was written by a guy named Matt Redman. And Matt was working at one of the most progressive, innovative churches in England. And while he was working there, Matt is a very gifted worship leader. Very gifted. And the pastor was in a meeting one day, and he just said, you know what, my concern is we're worshiping this music more than we're worshiping God. And so for the next few months, no music in worship. We'll do prayers, we'll do readings, and we'll do sermons. No music. And Matt Redman talks about that he had a difficult time kind of finding his place in the midst of that because he had always been a guitar singing praises to the Lord. And in the midst of that, the Lord really began to work on his heart. And as he got towards the end of that time, he decided that there was a song in his heart that God wanted him to write. And so he came to the point where he's getting ready to, to go back and, and use music and worship. And that first Sunday as they go back into worship, he started with a psalm that says, When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song because a song in itself is not what you have desired. You search much deeper within to the way things have been. You're looking into my heart. And I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. You see, when you get down to the end of it, it doesn't matter at all what we do externally. It doesn't matter whether you lift your hands or you clap or you don't. It doesn't matter if you sway a little bit in the pew or you don't. Because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And the real question is, are you worshiping the Lord with all your heart? Is your heart in it? I love that picture of the guys before the Ark of the Covenant praising the Lord with all their might. I love the picture of David dancing in the street with all his might. Let me just be real honest. Those times in life when I have worshipped the Lord the best have been the times in my life that I walked out of that place exhausted. I was exhausted last week. Exhausted. We went home and we had Easter dinner and then I laid down. Now part of that's because I preached twice. Some of you were really tired because you had to listen twice. But the point is, worship is something more than just mental. It is an entire body expression. And this morning, the question I have for you is, are you willing to be reverent and undignified? 